This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is The Morning Shift. It's Friday, which means it's time for the Friday News Roundup. It's not a surprise that there are going to be impacts on Jackson Park. That's part of the plan. The question is, what do we do about it? If people are defrauding the system, these you know wealthy parents are literally committing fraud here. Uh, we need to go find them, root it out, and make sure that those dollars go to the right people. I'm not going to stop sitting on the corner because... Some 17 or 18-year-olds with guns and behavior issues want to come and shoot up my block. I'm not going to be intimidated. With me around the table to break down those stories and more are Crane Chicago business, government, and politics reporter A.D. Quick, WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKenney, and Heather Sharon, managing editor and city hall reporter at The Daily Line. Mayor Lori Lightfoot made a series of promises this week to help make the lives of average Chicagoans better. Heather, what is the mayor talking about when she says she wants to roll out a Marshall Plan for South and West Side business corridors? If you remember during the mayoral campaign, one of her big issues was how during Mayor Rahm Emanuel's time in office, downtown seemed to boom while the neighborhood sort of struggled along. So this is sort of her attempt to make good on that promise. And she says by she said this week she's going to do that by focusing on several businesses business quarters. Now, she didn't specifically say which ones or in precisely what way, so that's all TBD. Uh, But it does show that her focus is going to be different than Rahm Emanuel's focus. And A.D., she didn't announce announce where these corridors would be, but any early thinking around where we might be looking? So the first thing I thought when I heard about this was this will build off of Mayor Rahm Emanuel's Neighborhood Opportunity Fund plan, which funded, um, it was basically small business grants to help people renovate uh, shops, stores, restaurants along um, commercial corridors on the south and west sides using money that developers would pay to build more dense developments in and around downtown. Um, there's also the matter of this uh, catalyst fund that was started under Mayor Rahm Emanuel's $100 million seed investment. And it's been very sleepy since then, but it was designed to grant uh, more upfront money so new businesses could start. So she has a big pot of money there. I think last time I reported on this in April for the Daily Line, they were on track together about $168 million in those Neighborhood Opportunity Fund fees, and it only paid about $50 million. So Lightfoot has a lot of money to play with when those funds come in and tons of applicants who want that money. Any timeline associated with this yet? Hopefully we will hear something while the city council is on break. She has a limited ability, though, to sort of dole out those funds without city council approval. So if she needs city council approval, we're looking at October for something to be passed. But if she can use the structure of the Neighborhood Opportunity Fund or the Catalyst Fund, uh, she's got a little bit more flexibility. All right. Mayor Lightfoot also said she'll make sure the developers of the forthcoming 
Obama Presidential Center will take community input into consideration. And this statement came after this new report was released. Dave, Mayor Lightfoot didn't go as far as endorsing an actual community benefits agreement that many organizers and some aldermen have called for. But this report said, look, this is going to have an impact on the neighborhoods where the Obama Presidential Center is located. So it seems like she's she's trying to thread a bit of a needle here. Yeah, I think she is. I mean, th- th- this project seems to be on track for groundbreaking next year. I mean, this is another step in the process. The mayor has asserted herself in this process. She wants to be a player in it. She says she's strongly, you know, going to strongly weigh in on it. So I think in the end, we're going to see a project, this project take flight. But, you know, the, the report itself is, is outlining what I think many people realize. This is going to be a disruptive thing, uh, and, and it's going to reshape the look of Jackson Park. And so, you know, certainly the mayor wants to have an imprint on that, but I don't think that this is going to be anything that, that throws up big hurdles to this. Heather, give us a better sense of the kind of pressure Mayor Lightfoot is, is getting from community activists and aldermen. Well, there are really two parallel issues here. One is the federal review of Jackson Park, and their initial review was that it would disrupt the historic Frederick Law Olmsted designed park. So the Obama Foundation now has to take community feedback on that finding and basically has to come up with a way to mitigate those impacts. And then those proposals have to, again, pass muster with the federal government. And I think Dave is probably right when he says this doesn't look like it could delay it further at this point. But once you get a federal review process involved, that's when I start seeing delay signs pop up all over because you can't really predict what those what the foundation is going to volunteer to do and whether those are going to be acceptable to the federal government. On the other hand, Mayor Lightfoot is going to come back in the fall to face pressure from Southside Alderman to approve that community benefits agreement. What's interesting is that she was a full-throated supporter of agreement during the campaign. And since then, she's gotten maybe a little bit more wait and see. So what they want is basically protections for affordable housing, as well as sort of help making sure that long time residents aren't displaced from the area around the library. And that is much, much more difficult than declaring a groundbreaking and getting everybody together to sing the former president's praises. A.D., how has the Obama Foundation responded? Well, they want full steam ahead. And they have said, we're doing everything in our power short of a CBA to be as responsive to the community as possible. We're doing job creation. We're going to be doing a lot of programs that will benefit the community. It'll be interesting to see. Um, I think Mayor Lightfoot has always viewed herself as kind of a chief negotiator and the ability and has the ability to kind of bring everyone to the table and work towards something that everyone's happy with. She took this role on in this Fair Work Week ordinance um, negotiations we've seen. So that backing off that Heather was talking about, I think she thinks that she can bring everybody together and figure something out in the middle. And I think the affordable housing thing is going to be a big demand from Southside Alderman Leslie Harrison and Alderman Jeanette Taylor, who was elected on this big CBA platform. So I think we've been waiting to see what her housing proposals will be. I think she will want to directly address the displacement that could happen around the Obama Presidential Center. And just remind us what activists are asking for specifically around the issue of housing, Heather. So they want 30% of any new housing to be set aside for low and moderate income Chicagoans. They also have requested some kind of property tax freeze for longtime property owners near the, the library. And what's interesting is that a property tax fees is really complicated because you've got state law involved and the, the whole Cook County assessor uh, infrastructure. So it's going to be difficult for, you know, the mayor to sort of put together an agreement that gets 
everybody what they want. So it's going to be very similar, I think, to the Fair Work Week negotiations, where some people are going to get some of what they want, other people are going to get a little bit something else, and hopefully they will all find uh, the middle ground where they can all declare victory. Mm-hmm. Well, earlier this week, Mayor Lightfoot also pledged to hire hundreds of new nurses, case managers, and social workers in Chicago public schools over the next few years. And, and this comes at a time uh, when CPS has already had difficulties with hiring in those very same positions. AD, they're saying, listen, we can't get people into these jobs. Explain what this means now that the the mayor has pledged to do this hiring. So this is a big part of the ongoing contract negotiations with the Chicago Teachers Union. They have demanded some minimum staffing requirements for social workers, for nurses, for librarians, basically support staff that Lori Lightfoot said she fully endorsed during this mayoral race. She said all of our CPS kids should have access to trauma-informed learning and to help them all be on the same level. There's shortages of nurses and social workers statewide. CPS critics say their current ratio is 1 to 1,200 students for social workers. So there's one social worker for every 1,200 students. CPS says it's 1 to 730. But that's just an idea of what the shortage is so far. And the CTU says this level of staffing does not go far enough, and they want mandated staffing levels required in their next contract, but it'll be a tough sell. Dave, is there anything at the state level that could be happening to help uh, create you know, a better hiring situation for CPS? Money. I mean, that would be the, <laughs> that would be the, the thing to do this. Because this plan nice? doesn't, uh, doesn't really have a, a price. I mean, it's got a general price tag attached to it, but how do you pay for it? We're at the beginning of the new budget cycle, so we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of, of divvying things up really again until next spring. And so you know, that would be the time I would expect Mayor Lightfoot would go to Springfield and say, look, I have this great idea. I want to have some help paying for it. And, you know, generally, I think, you know, she's got a pretty sympathetic cast of characters in Springfield willing to listen to that argument. The other thing that Mayor Lightfoot is going to have to keep in mind is that there's a limited number of things she can ask for from Springfield. And she is facing a budget deficit of somewhere in the neighborhood of $700 million. We won't know until the end of August precisely what that is. So she's going to have to make a decision. Am I going to go to Springfield and ask for additional money to fund these social worker and nurses and librarian positions? Or is the more pressing issue the fact that I have to keep the city out of the red and I need help with Chicago's pension? That Dave knows this better than I do, that there's, you know, a limited ability for Springfield to help Chicago and the mayor is going to have to make some tough decisions along those lines. Well, Dave, dig into that tension a little bit more for us, because as as Heather said, there are some competing needs in the city. Well, surely. I mean, you know, the, the, the pension issue is, is front and center. I mean, it's always been front and center. And you're talking, you know, the state has just multiple times decided we just can't write a blank check to Chicago to pay for the city's, uh, you know, unfulfilled pension obligations. But that being said, I mean, there are supermajorities in the House and Senate and a, and, a, and, a, and a governor who seems willing to sit down and work with them, with this mayor. I mean, you look at what happened in the spring session here. A lot of things got done. So I wouldn't automatically rule out that there would be progress on some of these big financial issues confronting Chicago. I mean, it, it, they've been out there. Uh, Lightfoot and Pritzker seem to have a good relationship with one another. So, I mean, let's wait and see and, and uh, you know, look to the spring and, and see what, see how things develop. Well, let's turn now to Mayor Lightfoot's plans to delay the deadline for releasing Chicago's preliminary budget. Speaking of money, 
Why isn't the mayor ready to show her hand just yet, Heather? Well, uh, according to her, she wants to have the best plan possible to present to the public. Uh, It's important to note that she took office after only about a 48-day transition period. When Mayor Rahm Emanuel took office in 2011, he had a transition period double the length. So she says she needs a little bit more time to get her hands around the city's budget. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, is that there are no easy answers. The city has a limited ability to raise taxes. The most frequently gone to pot of money is property taxes. Nobody wants to do that again because Rahm Emanuel pushed through a nearly $600 million property tax increase back in 2016. Nobody wants to do that again. So she has a limited ability to figure out how to bridge that gap. And, you know, there are a bunch of competing issues that are still unknown knowns. We know that the teachers are going to demand a raise. We don't know how much that will cost the city. We know that the police and fire contracts are now expired for more than two years. So not only are they looking for a prospective pay raise, they're looking for a retroactive pay raise. So that's also a, a big issue. So I imagine that the, the mayor is will be grateful for every possible second before she has to show her hand. Well, A.D., the city's also been without a financial analyst since since May. Since May. What's the holdup? So there was a holdup to even get this office off the ground to begin with. There were a lot of aldermen who were resistant to um, basically letting an outsider look at the books and also maybe push back on what the mayor wants to do, the mayor's proposal. So Ben Winnick served as the city's uh, financial analyst. Basically, he would take a look at budgets and big money spending programs and tell Alderman what he thought. He was given limited access to things, I think, by uh, then-Budget Committee Chair Carrie Austin and Finance Committee Chair Ed Burke. He is now working at the state. And there's a whole line of things that have to happen before they can replace him. Rules Committee Chair Michelle Harris has to get an oversight committee together, and they have to go review resumes and interview folks. And like Heather said, we're coming closer and closer to this budget deadline. And it makes it harder and harder for a new person to kind of get their arms around what all the numbers are. And how key is this position to really fulfilling this promise of of increased transparency in city government for Mayor Lightfoot? So critics of the office have said because Ben Winnick couldn't get access to what Carrie Austin and Ed Burke wanted him to see, that he was kind of um, shackled. And that when they do assign someone new to this office, maybe they should be given more powers to take a more critical look at the budget. New York has its own office, which has a massive budget and about 40 people on staff. Chicago's office has room for four and currently only one person working there. So aldermen say there's a lot more this office could do, but again, cost money. I mean, at the state level, there's a, there's a parallel. I mean, there's a, an entity that very few people outside of Springfield know called COGFA, and it's the same principle and it's existed for years where you have these outside analysts it's 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 an arm of the general assembly but they look at the the budget they tear it apart in different ways and they they monitor revenues and expenditures and, and it's actually been a useful thing that, that that most legislators i think would embrace right one thing i wanted to see is like put the stuff online shocking <laughs> I- Well, this is really a legacy of the daily years in both Richard J. and Richard M. So Chicago is, you know, unique in that it is technically a strong city council week mayor form of government. But Emphasis that, on technically. Yeah, technically. But that has not been the reality. And the the way that it has worked for decades up until this point is that the mayor has said, here's the budget. And then the city council has held hearings and maybe tinkered at the edges a little bit, but basically approved that budget uh, with the major planks in place. And the question is, are the aldermen going to get together and figure out a way to sort of be an independent body 
or are they going to continue to be a body that simply reviews what the mayor wants, tinkers maybe a little bit at the edges, and then approves it? So this is sort of a fundamental question of how the Lightfoot administration and the city council are going to interact going forward. So I think this will be a crucial test of whether the aldermen can sort of push back a little. And it's, of course, complicated by the fact that Lori Lightfoot won every single ward, and there may be not quite so much of an appetite to take on the new mayor, especially considering she's facing such a significant budget gap. A couple of other stories to know about. We learned this week that the search for Humboldt Park's beloved alligator, Chance the Snapper, cost the city more than $33,000. City officials revealed that figure in response to a Freedom of Information Act request filed by the Daily Line. The biggest cost came from the Department of Streets and Sanitation to section off parts of the park. And a study released yesterday shows police officers can transmit abusive behavior to other officers. The study is based on a review of more than 30,000 citizen complaints against Chicago police officers. And you can read more about that study at WBEZ.org. Well, speaking of CPD, data collected by Chicago police show murders and shootings in the city are at a four-year low through the first seven months of 2019. And here's a bit of Chicago Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson from an interview on WGN Radio. We have seen uh, double-digit reductions year-to-year since 2016, which is progress, but it's certainly not room to celebrate, so we still have a lot more work to do. You know, I said from the very beginning when I became superintendent, I wanted to be here until we can say Chicago is one of the safest cities uh, in this country. The CPD says it believes the drop has to do with its efforts, including seizing over 5,000 guns. Dave, your thoughts? Well, I, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a little bit like predicting the weather with, with these statistics here because they fluctuate up, they fluctuate down. And, you know, I, I think my only takeaway from it is, uh, yes, it does feel like things are a little bit safer here. I mean, the numbers, you know, you, we're not getting beaten over the head over these weekends, you know, one after another with, with uh, you know, huge, huge numbers. But uh, the, the main takeaway, I think, is that, that, that Johnson has to look at this. Johnson, who's been a little bit on the hot seat in, in the Lightfoot administration, he's got to look at these numbers and say, well, maybe this buys me a little more time as, as police superintendent. I mean, that's, that's how I would look at it. Heather, your thoughts? Last week, uh, we saw two Englewood mothers killed near the corner where Mothers Against Senseless Killings has been working to reduce violence. Um, I think that was a shock to many people's systems. It's hard to make the argument that things are getting better when you have such a high profile, really mass murder of women who were there trying to protect their children. I think that complicates the issue. Also, several weeks ago, Lori Lightfoot said that it felt like the police were losing the streets. That's a direct quote. That doesn't seem to jibe with the things are getting better message. And of course, Lori Lightfoot had gotten herself embroiled in a little bit of a back and forth with Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, whether or not bond reform efforts were complicating the city's violence reduction efforts. So there's a lot of muddled messages coming around on violence right now. And I am interested that it's not a more unified sort of message from the Lightfoot administration. And that might be perhaps because Eddie Johnson is scrambling a little bit, knowing that his seat gets hotter and hotter with every weekend where there are double-digit shootings and even some double-digit murder totals. Well, and this comes as a new report published yesterday showed that while fewer people have been locked up, there hasn't been a spike in violent crime. A.D., tell us who this report comes from and and what it says. So this report comes from three groups, um, two activist groups, Reclaim Chicago and the People's Lobby and the Appleseed Fund for Justice, which does a lot of um, looking at statistics. And they are basically coming out in defense of Kim Fox's policies regarding um, 
what they prosecute as a felony and saying that while incarcerations have gone down, violent crime has not spiked. And, you know, we are warned all the time, like Dave said, that these numbers go up and down and we can't point to any one thing. But they are saying it's encouraging that Fox is uh, pursuing these policies that are less punitive to people of color and low-income people while violent crime hasn't spiked. And they say that's for three reasons, increasing the threshold for what they prosecute for retail theft. So the state's attorney usually charged, used to charge people that stole things um, above $300. Now they've moved the threshold up to $1,000. they have also gotten more people into diversionary programs, and they've changed the culture in the office to not emphasize getting prosecutions, but on getting people into the best program meant for them. And you said they were they were three things? Was that was that all three? That was all three. Oh, okay. Retail, all theft, <laughs> retail theft, diversion, and a, a changing culture in the office. Now we should say Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox is up for re-election in, in 2020. And I'm just curious about the timing of the release of this report, just as we're starting to see some possible challengers emerge uh, to her candidacy. I mean, it was clearly a preemptive shot by these groups who feel like State's Attorney Kim Fox campaigned on these issues. She has made significant effort toward fulfilling those issues. And they want people to know that, hey, look, it, it hasn't created chaos. It's not been Armageddon. Uh, in, but that, I think, is complicated, of course, by my least favorite perpetual news cycle, uh, the Jesse Smollett case, because Kim Fox will argue, look, this is part of that culture change where we didn't charge him to the nth degree possible because that's not what we're about anymore. Um, and that complicates that argument because people were so upset about it. Um, and there's no doubt that she's going to have any number of different challengers, some Republicans, some Democrats, uh, as this shakes out. She's clearly seen as vulnerable. And the police union will be uh, front and center in trying to get her out of office. It's the Friday News Roundup when we break down some of the biggest local news stories of the week. That was Heather Sharon of The Daily Line. Also with us, A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business and WBEZ's Dave McKenney. A couple of other stories to know about today. Roadside injuries and deaths of Illinois state troopers are on the rise. And Governor J.B. Pritzker approved harsher penalties for motorists who break Scott's Law. That's a rule that requires drivers to, to change lanes or slow down if they see flashing emergency lights on the roadside. Drivers who injure or kill an emergency worker can now be charged with a felony, and anyone caught ignoring the law will now face a fine of at least $250. And two relatives of 1930s gangster John Dillinger say they have evidence the body buried in an Indianapolis cemetery may not be him, and that FBI agents may have killed someone else in 1934. The FBI immediately disputed that idea, calling it a myth that its agents didn't fatally shoot Dillinger outside a Chicago theater more than 85 years ago. You can read more about that story at WBEZ.org. I want to touch on some big news out of Springfield. Governor Pritzker signed into law a new measure that prevents Illinois employers from asking job applicants for salary history. Davis, tell us about this. Well, it's a big victory for advocates of gender pay equity. I mean, in 2003, that's when the state passed a law that, that said employers can't discriminate against men and women with you know on the basis of pay. Really, in the, in the 15 or 18 years since then, there's not been much progress toward that front. So this is, is basically an effort to say, look, you know, you can't, you can't ask about these past salaries because the effect of that is that, you know, if I've, if I've been only making $17,000 a year in my past job, then I might get 19000 in this new job and my, my, my low pay gets locked in often for an entire career. And so, you know, a lot of women's groups 
praised this. And and Pritzker, you know, Pritzker was up in front. I mean, he you know he has been on quite a tear with these bill signing ceremonies. There, you know, it's pretty much one a day, and it's another month of this, I think. But that was a big victory. It's 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 red meat to the base. Uh, as they say, and uh, you know, we'll see if this has any effect in draw in, in closing that gap. Well, we should say lawmakers passed two other versions of this bill previously, both of of which uh, previous governor Bruce Rauner vetoed. So, is was it just about the change in governors to get this bill passed uh, entirely? And and you know, the same groups that were aligned against it during the Rauner era were aligned against it this time. The business groups all didn't want to, you know, do what they you know they thought would hamstring employers. Uh, on this salary question, but but Governor Pritzker came into office with a different ideology than Governor Rauner, and this is what happens. Well, Governor Pritzker also vowed to investigate a loophole in the college financial aid system uncovered by a ProPublica Illinois investigation. A ProPublica found that dozens of well-off Chicago families are giving up legal guardianship of their children to qualify for need-based financial aid. And here's a bit of Governor Pritzker from a press conference on Wednesday. Wealthy parents are, are literally committing fraud here. Uh, we need to go find them, root it out, and make sure that those dollars go to the right people. I've worked very hard, and this General Assembly has worked very hard, to uh, raise the amount that people are getting in financial aid, the number of our students who are getting financial aid, which we increased by 10,000 more students just this spring. And I should say this ProPublica investigation found that the, the state ran out of money, of, of need-based financial aid um, for students who qualify on, on their own merits. Dave, when you first heard this investigation, what did you think? Well, I mean, it invoked uh, memories of that, that recent college admissions scandal, uh, you know, that, that, that hit nationally. Varsity Blues. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, you know... I, I mean, we're talking about dozens of people here, but I, I and I, I take my hat off to the people at ProPublica because they 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 went to the effort to uncover this. It's an extremely difficult thing to try to uncover this. There's no tracking of it, and you know Pritzker, as we heard on the on the clip, there was pronounced about how angry this made him. I mean, because you're right when when there are needy college students who rely on this uh, monetary assistance program MAP grant to to survive and get through college. Every dollar that doesn't go into that program because uh, a banker, a lawyer, uh, a real estate broker is is skirting the system in this way, uh, not to knock those professions, but that that is what the reporting showed. You know, it it, it triggers anger, and so Pritzker has about a, an investigation into this to see how prevalent it is. But but I expect that this is going to be something that has some legs. I think we'll see a legislative response to it. Well, well, there'll be hearings next week on this. The the Democrats have already sort of scheduled and uh, a way to sort of bring this more in the spotlight. But what was interesting to me about Pritzker's comment was that it sort of alluded to this culture, which you know seems like, well, I'm going to get mine, and don't worry about you know everybody else. We're basically all on our own. So I don't really know what a legislative response would be to that sort of culture. I mean, because these parents, you know, basically disowned their kids for a couple thousand dollars of, of MAP grants. But we should but, but say we, this is also happening at a time when there's a larger discussion happening about the affordability right. of college, um, that colleges have just, universities have just gotten so expensive that even families that are considered wealthy are having trouble paying for it. Well, I mean, I think a legislative response could be, you know, if you can, if, if, if these, if this scheme can be proven, I mean, it could be fraudulent and, and, you know, you well, could, you could inject, you could inject criminal pieces of it. Yeah. ProPublica's reporting said it was, they're not breaking any laws. Well, I, I, I also think it's interesting because, you know, a lot of those families that, that, that the organization called hung up, you know, so, you know, after, after these folks go through the legal process of, of shifting guardianship of their children, 
are these kids still sleeping in their bedrooms at home? You know, that's, the, that's sort of the question I have about it. And, and if that's the case, then that, that certainly does constitute fraud. That's WBEZ reporter Dave McKenney. Also with us, A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business and Heather Sharon from The Daily Line. And that's a wrap for the Friday News Roundup. Look for the Morning Shift podcast in your phone Sunday morning. It's the perfect companion to your Sunday coffee, running errands, or, you know, just lying around the couch. Until then, I'm Jen White. Have a great weekend, and let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.